0: Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Kim Kessler, and I'll be moderating the Roundtable today. Joining me shortly are four of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Leslie Watts. Each week, we watch a movie from one of the 12 content genres and complete a global foolscap worksheet, then discuss it using the six core questions. This week, we stitch up the status genre with 2002's Real Women Have Curves, written by Josefina Lopez and George Lavu, and directed by Patricia Cardoso. Here is a quick summary adaptation from IMDb. Real Women Have Curves is the story of Ana, a first-generation Mexican-American teenager on the verge of becoming a woman. She lives in the predominantly Latino community of East Los Angeles. Freshly graduated from high school, Anna receives a full scholarship to Columbia University. Her very traditional old-world parents feel that now is the time for Anna to help provide for the family, not time for college. Torn between her mainstream ambitions and her cultural heritage, Anna agrees to work with her mother at her sister's downtown LA sewing factory. Over the summer, she learns to admire the hardworking team of women who teach her solidarity and teamwork. Still at odds with what her mother expects of her, Anna realizes that leaving home to continue her education is essential to finding her place proudly in the world as an American and a Chicana. So let's start things off here with our first six core question. Anne, what is the global genre?
1: Well, we sort of agreed to view this movie to begin with as a status story. And I think that still holds up pretty well, although we're going to have a little discussion about whether there's a pretty strong secondary genre. I think it's status sentimental and status stories concern a single main protagonist's attempts to rise in society and the price they have to pay to get there. So the status genre runs along a value range of failure to success, uh, generally speaking. As um, Rochelle Ramirez, one of our colleagues, wrote in an excellent Fundamental Fridays blog post called Secrets of the Status Genre, the status story that ends in success is a prescriptive tale. It tells us how to maintain our place in society or advance up the social ladder, The cautionary side shows us what not to do by showing a protagonist who falls from a stable place in society down through compromise, failure, and finally selling out, which is another way of saying failure masquerading as success. So Real Women Have Curves is a success story. The protagonist, Anna, starts in a working class immigrant family that places a low value on education, and she ends up at an Ivy League university. So when a weak protagonist succeeds against the odds, we're in the sentimental subgenre. Anna starts out very weak, she's belligerent, she's passive, she's resentful, she's really not a very likable character. And her rise in social standing is mostly prevented by her mother who wants to preserve t- family traditions and cultural traditions. So it's a little weak because Anna learns to value the hard work her family does, so that realization really doesn't have very much to do with her going off to college because we start out knowing that she's very close to being accepted at a fancy college. The success here in this movie is more about winning her father's respect than about her social rise.
0: I think it's really interesting because I was noticing that the external genre here, as you're saying, feels like society domestic. So we have a power divide set within the family, specifically with the mother really owning the power here. When Mr. Guzman comes to, you know, really ask if. Anna can pursue college applications. You know, her father is somewhat interested, but her mother really, you know, wears the pants in this specific situation and doesn't want that to happen. And this is a family matter and she says no. And so what's interesting is that I think part of the reason why it's kind of hard to parse it out is because society, domestic, and status sentimental, they both really come from that same human needs tank of esteem. So we're really dealing with different aspects of that same human value you know whether it's personal power versus you know impotence or failure versus success and even you know the performance genre within that same esteem category you know that deals with respect and shame and so so here we're just we're playing out different versions of that same battle for Anna to really find whether she's looking for third party validation or her own validation does she have esteem for herself so self esteem versus third party esteem and in this case I think what it comes down to is not so much earning her father's respect, but not needing her mother's. The reason why she's able to rise and find success and go up in her level of status to be able to go away to college is because she overcomes that need to have her mother's blessing. And she has her father's blessing, she has her grandfather's blessing, her sister is proud of her, but she's not going to get her mother's blessing and she has to be okay with that. And so so the revolution here in the, you know, this kind of our secondary genre is so is more about not needing her mother's blessing and and coming to her own level of success and her own personal power. And so it's just an interesting dynamic there. And I think that's partly why it feels squishy, because they they do both exist within the same human needs tank.
1: That would help explain to me why I felt at moments that I was almost in a performance story, right. that there, they were so closely looped together. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. The same tank. That's something to really yeah. think about.
0: Yes. The other thing that I wanted to mention was in our research about internal genres, Leslie and I have noticed that when you have an internal genre that's global, so it's really taking that driver's seat of the the vehicle of the story, right? It's really it's driving the car. Often there's gonna be more than one external genre that supports it, either as you know, a co-pilot role in the front seat or maybe multiple in the back seat, you know, but they're all kind of in this vehicle of the story moving forward. But when when internal is driving, often you'll have more than one. And what we've found is that sometimes the external genres themselves may be less robust than we're used to seeing when an external genre is global and driving the car. Um, and so they are more subtle. You might have multiple external genres kind of woven together that all support as the setting or the avenue that this internal change takes place in. So here we have the society domestic, and we also have, you know, a small love story happening with her relationship with this boy, Jimmy, and kind of how that's playing out with her coming into her own and finding her own self-esteem and that kind of thing. And it, you know, it's not, again, what we would traditionally see when a love story is the subplot. And so it's a little less robust, but it's still part of her journey on her status.
2: Sure. This is a great premise for a movie. I think every immigrant group has got this exact type of story. It's also the American dream story. It's all the things that happen when people come from another culture, plop down in America, and then their kids are like between two worlds. And they obviously don't want to fall into the same groove, but yet they need to honor uh, where they've come from. And so that's a, this is a universal story, which we'll talk about in a second. That's something that colors my view of it as well.
3: I'm finding this discussion that we're having now about the genre fascinating because when I first watched it, you know, I, I sort of sat down to watch it through the filter of a status story since that's what we were planning to study this week. But I was tempted at first to call it a maturation plot because that's kind of what it feels like, Anna coming into her own. But if you scratch the surface of that at all, you'll see very quickly that this doesn't fit the bill for... A maturation plot, so I had to pull out my story grid again. I read Rochelle's excellent article, and also uh, Leslie and Kim have done a couple of articles, and I'll link to those in the show notes on various internal genres. So I had to go through those and really read the information there to figure out what it is. And I I see the domestic society domestic absolutely. I think it is a status story, but for me, it wasn't satisfying. And I had to then try and figure out why. So if you look at the value shift timeline thing, the value shift line that we use with the negative values on the left and the positive values on the right, it's never just black or white. There's always various shades of gray in there. And I think that Anna moves from compromise to success. So on the timeline, you've got neutral in the middle, then it's compromise, then success. So the shift is not huge. And intuitively, I felt that when I was watching it, but it took me a while to figure it out. And I just think the fact that we're all having this conversation right now and all trying to figure out what this thing is, is really indicative of what happens when you haven't clearly defined your genre. Now, chances are, when you write your book, you're not going to have a team of editors (laughs) sitting down having a panel sort of discussion about your book. But what will happen is that your reader is going to kind of feel confused or kind of feel lukewarm about your story, because intuitively, they're not sure what's happening or what story they're really following. So this is just, in my opinion, this conversation just highlights the importance of clearly identifying your genre at some point in your writing process. I think
4: that the shift in Anna is small in part because of this specific genre. So according to Norman Friedman, the status sentimental protagonist doesn't change a lot. They mainly remain steadfast and are acted upon as opposed to acting. In essence, the change is what's needed for Anna to rise in society. It's not enough that she wants to and has the grades to attend Columbia. If she's going to make it there... I want to think, I'm thinking of that New York song, but if she's going to make it there, she has to remain steadfast in who she is and learn to stand on her own two feet, or she'll risk compromising her moral code as she attempts to rise within society. So a good example of how we're seeing this subtle shift is the contrast in her walking style in the beginning of the film when she's on her way to school and she's riding different buses but then also walking and then when her mom tells her to walk like a lady and she kind of mocks her mom at that point but then at the very end of the film we see her walking very confidently in New York and so a movie like this that has a genre with a subtle change you can use examples like this to demonstrate that shift. So another reason that the shift in Anna is pretty small or subtle is that this is a mini plot. We're not anticipating epic change in the protagonist. Mini plots are focused on the internal and they're sometimes called slice of life stories with a specific character and setting. And I'll link to the podcast episode of the StoryGrid podcast where Sean talks about this. So in the mini plot, we also have multiple characters expressing opinions on the controlling idea or theme of the story. And I outline in the show notes the way that I see the different characters expressing their opinions on the controlling idea. I won't go through all of them now, but you can see how that operates within that context.
0: Okay, great. Valerie, will you take us through the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff?
3: So in the show notes, I will have the five commandments outlined in detail. But for now, I'll just give that one sentence synopsis for each of the three acts in a story. Okay, so the beginning hook. When Anna graduates from high school, she's asked by her teacher about her plans for college. Since her family can't afford post-secondary and doesn't really support her desire to go anyway— Anna has not applied and instead returns home to be manipulated by her melodramatic mother into working at her sister's factory. In the middle build, in a series of progressively bigger steps toward independence, Anna applies for college and begins to take action according to what she believes is right, rather than what her mother has dictated is acceptable behavior. Ultimately, although her family has disallowed it, Anna decides to attend college and all but her mother support her. In the ending payoff. Having made her decision, Anna leaves for New York and Columbia University without her mother's blessing, but manages to live happily ever after anyway.
0: Okay, so let's go on to Leslie. Please tell us the obligatory scenes and conventions of a status story.
4: Okay, so I'm gonna take a little different uh, path here today with the obligatory scenes because the conventional obligatory scenes for a status story do follow the hero's journey. But in this particular story, Anna's journey fits within The Virgin's Promise better. The Virgin's Promise, it's a different archetype that's explained in the book called The Virgin's Promise by Kim Hudson. And It's similar to the hero's journey, as Hudson explains. They are two halves of the same relationship with the self. One is focused on self-fulfillment, the other on self-sacrifice. In The Virgin's Promise, the protagonist's journey is to redefine her values and bring her true self into being. So in The Hero's Journey, the protagonist faces his fears and moves out into the larger world to help his community. And although we often talk about these as male and female roles, what we really are talking about is a more masculine or feminine energy. I'm not saying that very well, but hopefully you'll understand what I'm talking about, that it's going either going inward, which is the virgin's promise, or going out into the world, which is the hero's journey. Okay, so the first obligatory scene in The Virgin's Promise is the dependent world. And this is similar to establishing the ordinary world. The protagonist is dependent on others and suppresses or isn't yet aware of her true self. And here, Anna lives at home with her parents. She's dependent on them financially and socially. She can't make a living wage with the skills she has, and she can't attend college without their permission and support. The second obligatory scene is the price of conformity, and here we see what the protagonist loses because she's deprived of her true self. Anna tells her English teacher, Mr. Guzman, that she's not going to college and that he should help someone else. She will have to start work at her sister's dress factory. Her mother wants her to work in that business, find a husband, and have children. The third scene is the opportunity to shine, and this is the first real expression of the protagonist's talent or true nature, but it's on the down low, so to speak, so it's not a threat to the dependent world. In this story, Mr. Guzman stops by the Garcia family home and tells her parents that he'd really like to see Anna continue her education. She has great potential. Her parents aren't worried about this. They simply tell him and Anna, no. The next scene is the protagonist dresses the part. And this is not a literal dress, though it could be. But this is the first hint that the protagonist's dreams might come true. It's a tool that she can use to grow into her true nature. So Anna shows her application to Mr. Guzman. And he tells her he knows the dean of admissions at Columbia University. And he can put in a good word for her. But she still needs to write the personal essay. The next scene is or series of scenes, essentially, is the secret world. The protagonist creates a secret world or existence where her dream can begin to grow. It's outside the scrutiny of the dependent world, and she thinks she can juggle both. So here, Anna works on her personal essay and takes it to Mr. Guzman, but she also starts seeing Jimmy as she continues to work at her sister's dress factory. The next scene, the protagonist no longer fits in the dependent world. So as she begins to spend more time in her secret world, the protagonist recognizes she won't be able to do this long term. Anna asks her mother why a young woman's virginity is all that matters in a scene at the factory. She tells her that women have thoughts and ideas. And then Anna also insults the woman who pays Estella, her sister, for the dresses. And mom thinks she's pregnant. It's all just too much for Anna. The next scene, the protagonist is caught shining. The dependent and secret worlds essentially collide. Mr. Guzman comes again to the family home and lets Anna know that she's been accepted to Columbia University with a full scholarship. Her mother and father refuse permission again. In the next scene, the protagonist gives up what has kept her stuck. So the protagonist has to sacrifice some part of her past to move into the future, and this should be related to the price of conformity that came early in the story. Anna challenges her mother's values and owns her own by stripping down to her undergarments in the heat of the factory while the women are working. She declares that she likes herself and her body, and she says, there is so much more to me than just my weight. The next obligatory scene is the kingdom in chaos. Here, the dependent world begins to change as a result of the protagonist's choice to begin to express herself. Anna's mother doesn't, but the other women in the factory take off their clothes, and they declare that they too are beautiful. They dance as they finish the dress order they're working on. In the next scene, the protagonist wanders in the wilderness. This is a test of her conviction. She must separate from the dependent world and stand on her own. Anna asks her father for his blessing, not permission, to attend Columbia, and he gives it freely. They tell her mother at dinner. The next scene is the protagonist chooses the light. Here the protagonist decides to trust herself and pursue her dream no matter what. Anna has packed and is leaving for the airport, and at the end we see Anna walking confidently in New York City. Now, a lot of these scenes at the end are compressed and close together, but we see elements that give us these scenes in the sequence. The last two are first, there is a reordering. The protagonist recognizes her value and she reconnects with her community. So, Anna's mother stays in her room and won't speak to Anna. So, Anna is effectively banished from her mother's presence. But she leaves for college anyway. And Anna has reconnected with the women at the factory, as well as her father, grandfather, and cousins, so the male members of her family. And the final scene is the kingdom is brighter. Members of the community realize they're better off for the protagonist expressing her gifts. So this is not explicitly shown beyond the scene in the factory, but it's clear that the women have a new appreciation for their value as women and their bodies.
2: <laughs> there's just a lot of revolution talk, I guess, especially uh, from Anna. And, and then the one the one part of a revolution, at least in my mind, was, you know, when Anna kind of takes control over her virginity and, you know, wants to have sex with Jimmy and that kind of love story element or mini plot of the love story. I know why it's there, but it wasn't very satisfying. <laughs> I was just not that thrilled with it. Although there were some really cute little parts of it, and Anna trying to like navigate that was kind of interesting. But a lot of the things in this movie, the the setups and payoffs just don't happen. Something gets set up, and then you're like, where'd it go? (laughs) What happened? Oh, no.
4: I totally get that. I see it a little differently. To me, the resolution of Anna's relationship with Jimmy was about her not wanting to set a goal that's unrealistic, which is an important aspect of status stories because protagonists set them up for failure when they choose a goal that is either too low or not challenging or too high. So she recognizes that they'll both meet people while they're in college and then it's a bit unrealistic that they will maintain their relationship. So that's just another way to frame that relationship.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Leslie. So Jari, will you take us through the conventions for a status story?
2: Yeah, sure. The, the first one is a, a strong, a mentor figure. Uh, and in this case, it's uh, Mr. Guzman, uh, who is Anna's teacher really wants her to go to college and uh, is encouraging her to uh, pursue that. There's also Anna's grandfather who is, Kind of a minor role, but a very important role because um, he sort of the tells the story of the family and is 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 in with her when when she wants to go out with Jimmy. He f- kind of fakes a date with her, and so that Anna and Jimmy can go out. Uh, and he's also said that he's found his gold in Anna, which I think is a really wonderful generational thing. The next one is a big social problem as a subtext, and in this one it's class. Uh, so the family. Obviously, has come to East LA to live a better life. They've got; they've been working really hard. Her dad's a a gardener. Her her sister owns a a dressmaking factory where her mother works, and there is a big family component of sticking together and really, really wanting to be a family and be together. And that has a lot of tension for Anna, and it's between Anna and her mother Carmen, which is the big friction point. How is Anna going to um, break free from her mother, and and that's a class problem. And I think her her mother just sees Anna as going away and being in a higher kind of class structure. And part of the reason she tries to suppress her is tell her she's too fat. I mean, some of the some of the comments are like, oh my god, pretty bad. The third one is shapeshifters as hypocrites. Secondary characters say one thing and do another. I mean. Carmen, her mother, is the major one. She's like, oh, I have your best interest at heart. I want you to be successful, yet she's completely trying to shut down all of her dreams. And it's pretty obvious and she says it a lot, but I mean, it's really uh, the main conflict between Anna and Carmen. And then the Herald or Threshold Guardian is a fellow striver who sold out. This could be Mr. Gooseman or Anna's sister, Estella since she's actually literally is running a sweatshop. And I mean, not only uh, it is a sweatshop, but then also (laughs) there's the the big revolution scene where they're all sweating because it's so hot, which is a pretty on the nose, but re-envision classic revolution scene. Um, Also the female executive that Estella is making the dresses for, she's also Latina. And it's sort of like, why can't she help her out? And she even says, I took a chance on someone like you, and that I think is a, another. You know, hey, why can't you be a little more uh, kind or considerate or help them out? But she just says wants nothing to do with it. The next one is a clear point of no return, truth will will out moment when the protagonist knows they can never go back to the way things used to be. This happens a couple times, especially when Anna is becoming a woman on her own terms, when she and, and Jimmy get intimate, and. Basically, Jimmy accepts her for what I look like, you know, when she then I think drops her kind of her self-loathing and, and at least stops hearing what her mother says, because there's a certain point where she's listening to her mother. She's kind of sort of taking it to heart, but then kind of like, oh, you know, the big eye roll, like, I can't believe I got to deal with this. Uh, but really, the point of no return for Anna is at the end when she leaves to go to Columbia, her mom doesn't come out. So for Anna, it's like, okay, I'm gone, I'm, I'm going. It's your last shot to wish me luck. Ironic or paradoxical, win but lose, lose but win, bittersweet ending. For this, I think it's when she becomes independent, but she also loses her family, which is really important. Um, clearly this is a tough call for her, but she just really does feel the draw of like, ah, oh, I got to get a better life. I got to get out of this East LA cycle. I don't want to be a dressmaker. I've got brains. I've got ambition. She wins. And then again, I think we talked a little bit about the iconic Saturday night fever scene <laughs> where she's beat bopping down, uh, in New York, like a confident young woman who's now she's won, but she's not with her family. Those are the conventions of of status. A couple other things just wanted to mention. Even though this is sort of an iconic immigrant story, each immigrant group may have a different way it's told, but there's still the tension from the old world and the new world, and how this, you know, the second generation, the kids of first generation immigrants deal with that. And it's a very powerful story structure that. A lot of us can relate to, um, and it's like a universal truth.
3: Yeah, and I just wanted to add to that the genres have obligatory scenes and conventions. We talk about this all the time, and Leslie and Jari just brought us through obligatory scenes and conventions for the status genre. And what these scenes are about, they're about satisfying audience expectations in terms of genre. Sometimes, or usually, when a writer or filmmaker is presenting a story, regardless of the genre, they set up story-specific expectations in the reader or in the viewer, as the case may be. And it's in the second case where I think Real Women Have Curves has missed the mark. They've set up expectations in their audience in two key areas – Anna thinking for herself, and Anna standing up to her mother. And they didn't show us either of these. And they didn't even give us a real clear... It it doesn't have to be a whole scene that does this, but they didn't give us a clear moment where we perceived that this happened. Now, because we consume a lot of story, we can fill in the missing gaps. But I think this is a real weakness in the story. For example, if you look at my notes in the show notes you'll see that in the middle bill, there isn't really a crisis question because the crisis question for Anna is, does she finally step out on her own and go against her family, specifically her mother, and break out on her own or live her own life? Or does she keep the domestic, well, I was going to say happiness, but certainly peace, (laughs) the domestic peace, and just live a life of minimum wage, just in the same house with all the same people, everything that she's lived up to that point. And we don't see that. It goes from the factory scene, the liberation scene, where all the women have taken off their clothes, and cuts immediately to Anna talking to her father about having made the decision to go to university. And in the ending payoff, the thing that I was waiting for anyway, the whole story is to see Anna stand up to her mother and say, you know what, mom? This is my life and this is a decision that is for me and I respect where you're coming from, although I don't think she does, but, but I'm going to do it my own way. And again, the scene cuts short. It's a dinner scene where Carmen comes in and serves the food on the table and everyone is really quiet. And um, the dad, I think his name is Raul, said, tells her to sit down because Anna has something to tell her. And then it cuts to an external shot of the house. And I felt a little robbed by that because I wanted to see Anna stand up to her mother, and we didn't get to see it. So while the genre has obligatory scenes and conventions to respond to genre expectations, within your story, you are setting up expectations that you have to pay off later. You have to, if you're gonna tease the audience with it, you have to satisfy that with letting them see that part of the story unfold.
0: Okay, thanks. So, Anne, tell us the point of view and narrative device.
1: Well, this is very simple. The story is essentially entirely from Anna's point of view. She's in virtually every scene, and we experience the whole story through her eyes. I I don't think I spotted any scene that she basically wasn't in. Um, There might have been a couple. Uh, An adult audience can see how bad her attitude is at first, so... It's possible that she doesn't see it herself and, and that we as an adult viewer see her need to change. It's clear to us. So that lends a little bit of dramatic irony, uh, but that's not primarily the, the narrative drive. I'd say the main narrative drive here is to sort of a modest suspense of will she or won't she convince her parents to let her go to college uh, in New York, away from home. The narrative device is this, it's very straightforward, linear storytelling. It's very simple. Leslie makes a great case for it being a mini plot story, I think, with opinions about honest situation expressed by a range of different characters. But the single POV and the linear structure retain the feeling of a simple arch plot or a single clear arc from failure or compromise to success.
2: Yeah, I I see that. I mean, there are some mini plots, you know, within it, but they just don't pay off very well. I think they're there to kind of like bring it along a little bit, but uh, I just don't feel satisfied.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's a definite failure of setups and payoffs in this story.
2: And it still kind of works just because the global story is just such a, I mean, the arc is pretty clear, you know, we're so focused on Anna, but still in your writing, if, if you have a lot of these loose ends, a lot of times readers may still like the work, but they'll, they won't feel as satisfied uh, and so, always looking to, if you've got a setup, make sure it pays off, set up and pay off and make the experience much, much better. And I don't know, it'll make me happier. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> well, it's all about you,
0: Jerry. So, um, <laughs> well, I just wanted to mention one thing. Um, about mini-plot um, and kind of what I'm noticing. It's it's one of the things that I'm currently obsessed with. And so I'm looking for examples to study because we're currently, well, and probably lifelong obsessed with internal genres. And mini-plot is often a way that an internal global genre is conveyed. And I think we've kind of went through, I think a shift in our thinking about what does mini-plot really mean? I think we used to really associate it with multiple characters and showing multiple point of views. But what I think, um, and Sean has recently on the flagship Story Grid podcast been a little more clear, I think, with it being mini events that seem possibly somewhat separate, but altogether they culminate into a change rather than like in an arch plot, it's a very cause effect, cause effect, cause effect. And so I think here, sometimes when we're seeing maybe a scene, Valerie, like you were mentioning, where the scene doesn't really feel like it finishes necessarily, they're more like you're just seeing small moments and then you see other small moments and you kind of fill in the gaps in between and you start to see this progression. I think you can have a first person point of view story and still have a mini plot. I think it's more about having a sequential cause effect versus having somewhat separate isolated events that all together track to a global change. Um, Anne, will you take us back through the objects of desire and wants and needs?
1: Yeah, this is pretty simple, too. Uh, Anna wants respect from her family, especially her mother. Uh, She wants to be respected for her mind and her ideas and not just for her ability to bear grandchildren. And what she needs is to respect her family first and respect herself before she can earn uh, her, at least her father's full support. So ultimately, she needs to let go of her desire to win her mother's respect because their worldviews are too different. And that was the major turning point in the story to me when she realizes that she's just not going to win that. From her mother.
0: Yep, absolutely. So take us now through the controlling idea and theme.
1: The baseline controlling idea for a status story, a positive status story, is success results when a person is true to their values, whether or not it leads to social betterment. So here we have a protagonist whose own inner values are unformed at the beginning, and she has to learn to respect her family's values before she can earn their respect. The maturation plot, arguably so strongly woven into the status plot that you can't really tease them apart, but I think there is a maturation element here, so I tried to kind of weave that in uh, to my controlling idea, and here's what I came up with. A young woman wins permission to leave her family roots for a better life when she earns their respect by learning to respect them.
0: Okay, And now this takes us into good examples. Special scene types, outstanding tropes, clear tie-ins to other genres. I think one thing we have said is that there were kind of a failure of setups and payoffs. There were opportunities where things were introduced that weren't paid off satisfactorily, like the red dress. And so that's, again, something to think about. Jari, take us through a couple of your thoughts.
2: I think the most well-done Revolution scene <laughs> that I've seen in a long time was you know when the women revolt and say, "Hey, real women have curves," uh, and it was just a wonderful way to sum up the whole movie. In fact, it's it's even better in that Carmen and his mom doesn't participate in the revolution, and the rest of the women do, uh, and Anna's is the leader of the revolution. And I think that's just the perfect way for her to be you know what, I'm finally going to break free. I I think at that moment, you kind of realize Anna can't turn back. That revolution scene is very well done. Uh, And then, you know, what was interesting is that there's a new movie out called Lady Bird, where a lot of critics thought that, oh, you know, Lady Bird is just a whitewashed version of Real Women Have Curves. Well, I mean, you can say say the same thing for um, Real Women Have Curves is just the Joy Luck Club or pretty much any story related to mother-daughter conflict between a first generation and a second generation family. These stories are just universal. And um, the specifics of this story illustrate the real universality of what makes up uh, the collective experience for all types of immigrant groups. It's, it's, it's really the, the, a beautiful example of how specifics are universal.
1: I felt like the movie sacrificed three big scenes that would have made it more visually satisfying to me, but. At the same time, I couldn't imagine how to do those scenes without them feeling like big cliches because they are so much what I expected. The first was the no, we didn't ever see the red dress payoff. Estella has made this beautiful red dress for Anna. We totally expect her to come, you know, parading down the stairs, going to the prom, something in this red dress. It never appears again. So it's like a Chekhov's gun that never fires. But the payoff for that red dress I'm trying to think how it would have not been a cliche. So that this is this is a question I'm asking in all these cases. I wanted and didn't get a scene where Anna really helps her sister get a better price for the dresses like confronts the well-to-do businesswoman more strongly. I felt that missing so much that I swear I imagined when I first saw this movie that that scene was in there and that they cut it for Amazon or something because it just so needed to be there. But again, how do you do that without it being a scene that you haven't seen already uh, several times in other movies? And then finally, I did expect to learn something about what was in this miraculous essay that she wrote that got her a free ride to an Ivy League university. There was not a word, not, not even the slightest hint of what was in that essay. And again, how would you do that without, how would you show that scene without it being exactly what the moviegoer expects. So those are questions, you know, how would you innovate? Instead of just leaving them out, it's as if the director or the writer decided the innovation would be to leave those payoffs out. But a good question for writers to ask is, this is what I expect, so how will you innovate it to surprise me? There was a scene that I thought was interestingly reflective of another scene that we've seen in an earlier episode, where. Mr. Guzman comes to Anna's birthday party, and it was ex- almost exactly the same scene as the one in Billy Elliot, where Mrs. Wilkinson, Billy's dance instructor, comes to Billy's house. And I thought it was really interesting that this mentor inserting him or herself into the life of the protagonist, and there's a class difference, a distinct uneasy class difference where this person comes in and speaks. um, There's a language difference or a dialect difference, uh, a sense of like forceful intrusion on behalf of a talented protagonist. And the scene was so strongly reminiscent of Billy Elliot that it made me almost see this movie as a performance story. I mean, one scene alone does not make a genre, but it was definitely a scene that you have seen. We've all seen in performance stories. So I thought that was an interesting use of a, of a type of scene. And it raises a question of what constitutes a mentor something to think about. How many different kinds of mentors are there? Is the mentor that intrudes on, into the protagonist's lower class situation, a particular type of mentor that's best suited to an internal genre story? I don't know the answer, but it's something to think about.
3: Okay. I had a couple of things to add here. First of all, we know from story grid methodology and from a lot of other theories as well, that the ending of a story has to be surprising, but inevitable. Unfortunately, with Real Women Have Curves, the ending is neither surprising nor inevitable. And I'm just going to second everything that Anne just said about how can you do it without being cliche? Well, this is where the skill comes in. And you might toss up, 15 or 20 possible ways of portraying the ending and they might all be cliche. And then idea number 21, there's your winner. So for me by the end of the second scene, and I went back and timed it, this is the first five minutes of the movie, including the opening credits. So it's in the first five minutes of the movie. I knew what the ending would be. So that was too bad because I really wanted it to be surprising, but inevitable. (laughs) A couple of other things, the, audience has to have empathy with at least one character in the story and that character is the protagonist. Also, the force of antagonism has to have a point. Now, those are two ideas that I'm mentioning together because I think in this story, in this film, they go together. For us to have real empathy with Anna, we've got to believe that Carmen, her mom, has a point that Anna is truly needed to generate income for the family. That there is some real reason why she cannot go off to university and better herself and potentially then have more money to help everyone in the family. Instead, Carmen is holding her daughter back because she's jealous and she's spiteful. And it's really... Even uh, the dad, who at one point when Carmen is complaining about how much trouble Anna has caused her her whole life, the dad even says, no, no, she hasn't. She hasn't caused you that much trouble. And Carmen says, I've been working since I was 13. I didn't have these opportunities. She can't have them either. So it's really hard to become emotionally engaged in that situation or to think that the antagonist has a point. Now, if you contrast this with Aquila and the bee, which Interestingly, is another performance story, Anne, and you just talked about it as well, a performance story. In Akilah and the Bee, we really want the mom to come around and support Akilah. And while we're hoping that she's going to come around, we might not agree with her opposition to Akilah's aspirations, but we really do understand where she's coming from. She genuinely doesn't want her daughter to get hurt or be disappointed the way she was. So Akilah and the Bee is the kind of story that audience members will tell their friends about, but real women have curves is not something I would recommend to my friends, I'm sorry to say.
0: I want I think that there when I'm thinking about Carmen, you know, Anna's mom and the reason why she's holding her back to me, if you change any of those things that you mentioned, you change the genre. I feel like all those other things you're you'd be more likely setting it up for a maturation plot, where Carmen's going to come around and she's going to see you know see things from Anna's perspective, and Anna's going to come around and see things from Carmen's perspective. It kind of reminds me of the animated movie Brave, right, where you have they. Fundamentally, do not understand one another at the beginning, and then they understand each other at the end. So, I think the point of this movie, the function that the writers had, their intent was fundamentally different than *Aquila and the Bee* or *Brave* or any of those other movies that we were talking about. And I think it's that Carmen, her mentality is she wants her daughter to get married and have children, right? That's what she wants. She wants her to be close by to be married and have children. And even in the revolution scene. When Anna is like, you know, mom, you're just like us. You're overweight, just like us. And she goes, Yeah, but I'm married. And it's very clear that the reason why you need to not be overweight is to get a husband so that you can get married. And it's, I think it's that, it's just those entirely different view of what a woman's role is and what they're supposed to be. And Carmen's view of that is not going to change. And so here, the point isn't that they understand each other. It's that Anna's going to just have to be okay with that. Her mother's never going to understand, and she has to be able to go do that anyway. Um, It's almost an admiration level that way. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, I'm not saying that Carmen has to change her opinion, and I'm not saying that Anna and Carmen have to understand where the other is coming from. What I'm saying is the audience has to recognize that Carmen has a point.
0: Right. I, I guess I'm just saying that she does, right? She does fundamentally. I don't think she does.
3: Right. I don't think she, I mean, I can, uh, she is, she is spiteful. Okay. Right. That, that's how I I'm look just at saying, it. I, I spiteful think, and jealous. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think, you know, I don't think she's, she's not kind, but I think in her own way, like based on her traditional views, her entire life experience leads her to be the person that she is. And that is the point. The point is, she puts the saints up, she does these things to try to make her daughter get a husband faster, because fundamentally, that is her point. And We may not agree with it or understand it, but I guess I would just argue that she does have a point, and I feel like it comes through what her point is, even if it's not uh, something that we can get on board with. Okay, that wraps it up for this week. Great discussion, everyone. Thank you, Anne, Jari, Leslie, and Valerie for excellent editorial insights into Real Women Have Curves. We hope our discussion helps you write a better status story and a better mini plot story. You can find the Fool's Cap and other materials in the show notes on StoryGrid.com. We'd like to invite our listeners in the StoryGrid community to comment, argue with us on our interpretations on Twitter at StoryGridRT. If you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor, or you'd like to find out more about what we do, you can visit StoryGrid.com editing. And if you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. Join us next time when we once again touch down into the worldview genre with the 2016 science fiction drama Arrival, one of my absolute favorite movies, and I'm so excited to look at that with you guys. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks so much for joining us, and we will see you next week.